Scribbler's Corner is brought to you by Brad Kuhn and Associates and the Jacks by Jacks Literary Arts Festival. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Scribbler's Corner, the podcast about writers and writing, broadcasting from River of Grass Studios, where two rivers meet and you never know who will tie up to the dock for a chat and a fresh cup of coffee. I'm Darlin Finch Kuhn, but my friends call me the Scribbler. Today we're talking about screenwriting. With us in the studio is filmmaker, director, writer, actor, Fred Zara, who lives in Orlando, but's in Jacksonville for the Southeast Regional Film Festival, where his latest film, The Suicide of James Ryder, is being screened. Fred grew up in New Jersey, where at 15 he got kicked out of the ninth grade for fighting with a teacher, and he played drums in a Trenton-based punk band under the name of Fred Fatal. A wild ride he documented 20 years later in his award-winning documentary, Average Community. Fred, welcome to Scribbler's Corner. Thank you for having me here. So how does a 15-year-old high school dropout with anger issues go from riding around with friends to meet their crack dealers in New Jersey to being an award-winning filmmaker in Florida? How do I go from that to this? Is that the question? Um, Yeah. Uh, a lot of time, a lot of time away, a lot of time to reflect, uh, I suppose. I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a solid answer for that. Um, you know, in, in a way, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm completely different than I obviously was when I was 15, but I'm not all that much different because it's still, I'm still creating art and I'm still creating art in a way that, you know, I want to do it. it. I'm not creating art to, to please an audience. Uh, I'm not creating art necessarily to make money. Um, which is kind of the punk rock attitude, right? Uh, doing it the way I want to do it. Um, so I, you know, it's, I grew up, I guess is the, is the only way I can think about it. Um, I'm not all that much different inside, but I grew up and I'm a little more mature, I guess. Right. It happens to the best of us and the worst of us, I guess. Was there anything you learned from the hard times in, uh, Trenton that uh, you think has helped you as an artist? Have I learned from uh, growing up in Trenton? Well, you know, and I believe I say an average community, actually someone says it to me, an average community that uh, where you grow up is pretty much forms who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Right. So um, uh, I guess everything that I learned uh, just about foundationally is from coming up, uh, living in New Jersey, growing up, in not the easiest circumstances, being in a punk band, having troubles in school, getting thrown out, getting in fights and stuff like that. Um, you learn how to protect yourself. Uh, you learn how to, um, you know, it's weird because in New Jersey, a lot of times protecting yourself is the main goal, protecting yourself from embarrassment, protecting yourself physically, protecting yourself emotionally. Uh, and you grow up learning how to be hard in a way. So if I learned anything, um, I would have to say that I'm trying to unlearn a lot of that now. Uh, I'm learning how to try and be more emotionally open, uh, allowing myself to be in situations where I might get hurt, you know, uh, being more open with my emotions or feelings, you know, uh, growing up in school, if I was in high school and I said, I wanted to be in theater class because I had I wanted to express my emotions and I wanted to be an actor. Um, <laughs> that wouldn't go over too well. You'd have, you'd have people fighting you in, in, in the hallways in, in school just because of that statement. Hey, Hey guys, uh, I know you guys want to go, you know, to the, to the drive-in tonight and, and, you know, go drinking, but I'm going to go, I have a theater class I want to go to that wouldn't go over so well. So um, <clears throat> I guess a lot, a lot of what I, what I've experienced growing up is I'm trying to unlearn it now and I'm trying to be, um, you know, more emotionally connected and, and, uh, yeah, I don't know if that fully answered your question. Um, but I guess a long, long answer to, to your question, uh, is that I, you know, uh, everything I experienced growing up, I, I still take with me today, you know, absolutely. 
So what brought you to Florida? How did you go from where you were to here? Uh, what brought me to Florida? Um, so uh, when I was in my, excuse me, when I was in my early 20s, um, I started phasing out of wanting to play music for either a living or at all, really. I still, even to this day, enjoy playing music, the act of playing music, being part of a unit, uh, you know, and, and I'm starting to play a little bit more now. But um, in my early 20s, when I was about 10 years into playing music, it was it was really starting to wear on me. Um, you know, just the lifestyle, being out late all the time and lugging. I was a, I'm a drummer, so there's no easy way to lug a drum drum set around. Uh, we were in Trenton, so there's not a ton of places in Trenton. So a lot of our shows would be in Philadelphia or in New York City or at the Jersey Shore or somewhere in between. Uh, so just, just a lot of travel, getting home three, four o'clock in the morning. It, the lifestyle ended up not being anything I wanted to pursue anymore. Um, so the the last band that I was in was breaking up. My brother Joe, uh, who was in that band, decided he was going to move to Orlando. Um, because uh, we had some friends, one friend in particular that moved here with family and then someone followed her down. And then, you know, uh, it kind of snowballed. A bunch of friends started moving down here. Uh, and then I kind of woke up one day and I realized um, I, I moved to Las Vegas for a little while. And that didn't, that was kind of silly. So I came back uh, from Las Vegas and then I kind of woke up one day and I realized that now both of my brothers were in Orlando. Um, and I a lot of the friends that I had <laughs> were in Orlando. I started to realize that more of the friends that I wanted to hang out with um, were in Orlando uh, than were in Trenton. Uh, and then the, the the girl that I was with at the time, we, we ended up splitting up. And then I'm like, you know, there's really not anything for me to stay here, uh, stay in Trenton anymore. So um, I fought it for a little while. I don't want to live in the heat. I lied to myself and said, you know, because, uh, you know, change is hard. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately it was like, called me down here and there was, there was no way to get around it. So, uh, I just came in, uh, January, 1999. So I just passed 20 years. Wow. So Trenton's loss is our gain. We're, we're glad you're here doing uh, well, what you do. <laughs> Trenton's unfortunately has a lot of losses. Um, I wouldn't put myself in that category, but, uh, yeah. Was there a moment of truth that made you grow up? Once you were here, uh, I don't. I, I'm growing up. I hope. I hope that's what I said. I believe that's what I said. I, uh, if I didn't, I'm correcting the, the record here because I'm not fully grown up yet. Um, so I don't know that there was a moment of truth. Uh, there were a couple. Um, one I can specifically point out when I was uh, 16 years old, and this is um, this is shown in the, the film Average Community. Uh, my friend Stephanie uh, died of a heroin overdose, uh, and she was 18. I was 16. Um, this I remember quite quite clearly, uh, even though it's 30 years now. Um, so there was a lot of drugs back then in my teenage years, um, some of which I partaked in, some of which I tried to stay away from. But uh, uh, there was a lot of drugs around. And um so, uh, so then Stephanie was there one day and then the next day she wasn't and she died on Christmas Eve. Uh, and it was a shock to have someone of our age that was like one of us to, it's like, what do you mean? She's gone. Like, oh, oh that's, that's kind of weird. But then like the week later, she's still gone a month later. She's still gone. Like she's not coming back. It was weird to experience that at, at 16 years old. Uh, and I had this very distinct memory, um, that, uh, after uh, the day of her um, viewing, I don't, do you call it a viewing mm -hmm. nowadays? Yeah. I don't know what That's they call right. it. Um, the day of her viewing, uh, we all went to it. Uh, and then for whatever reason, there was like a gathering of our punk rock friends that ended up coming over our house afterwards. Our house was somehow kind of centrally located and was like a hangout house a lot. Uh, so after going to her viewing, I remember coming back that night and, uh, and falling asleep on a couch. And I remember waking up and all of a sudden there was a house full of people and just hearing all these conversations as I was like waking up out of a sleep. And I, and it was just weird, weird 
mixture of people saying, I can't believe she's gone. How did this happen? Does anybody know the circumstances? You know, this is really, this is, this sucks really bad. It went from that to, you know, you think we can go, uh, go up to New York and get some D and maybe we can D being, uh, angel dust, which was one of the drugs of choice. Um, so it was like, on one hand, they're having conversations about how sad it was that Stephanie died of a drug overdose. And on the other hand, they were like, okay, well, let's wrap this up so we can go get some drugs and everybody get messed up. Uh, and I, and I, and everybody's older than me. I was always the youngest. So I, I remember being 16 years old and here's all these 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds. And I'm, and I just remember just having this moment of clarity, like what is going on here? Are don't these people understand what just happened and what is going to happen to them if this continues? Yeah. Uh, so I'm they not going to say that they were still feeling immortal and you had the really realization that no, we're not. I suppose no. I, it's just, and I'm not going to say that I never touched a drug after that day. That that would be silly to say, but uh, it definitely, I do. Um, I do in a lot of ways, credit Stephanie's uh, passing with, me always reminding myself to not get in over my head with those sort of things. Right. Now, I understand that you also had a, a learning disability that you had to overcome to um, do what you're doing today. Do you want to sure. tell us about that and how, how you uh, overcame that? Uh, sure. Um, so I don't know if you ever, I say so a lot. Do I say so every time I, I'm, I'm about to answer a question? If I do, you can, you could slap me or you could have Brad shut the mic off. It's, if I, it's fine. if I slapped everybody who said so, I'd be slapping myself. So you go right ahead and so all you want. Okay. So, um, uh, I don't know if you ever really get over a learning disability. It's like one of those things that you kind of always have, but I'm not big on, um, labeling myself, uh, back when I was in, in school or early school, um, elementary school, um, and early middle school, uh, labels like learning disability, dyslexia, partial dyslexia, those kind of things were being thrown around. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't like to necessarily label myself as that. Uh, however, it is something that is a challenge that still follows me around. Um, I like to equate it to working out. Um, it, I could clearly read and I can clearly sit down and read a book if I wanted to. Um, but I would almost have to work up that. Okay. Uh, if you if if you wanted me to sit and read your book from cover to cover, I would probably have to like work out my reading ability for a month or something like that, and read articles day after day, read a half a book, and it's it's almost like a, it would be like right now it would be like me running a marathon when I can only run three miles. I see. Um, so it's just it's the processing speed. Yeah. Uh, of my brain when it comes to reading is uh it just it gets frustrating and it sounds like though that you've you've come up with a way to do it if you have a strong need to do it which is, sure, is uh, sure. interesting and, and inspiring at the same time well i've worked in um for the past seven years i've worked in the the, the tech industry and have have had to stare at a lot of com computer code so okay uh you make do you just you make do you do what you have to do good for you now, you did a short documentary on the nature of creativity and why people create. So how did that come about? And what, if anything, did you learn that surprised you about creativity? You saw that. Did you see that? Uh, yes. We took a look. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, create. Create the documentary. Um, so here we go again with the so. When I, uh, I was at a point in my life where I had two little kids um, and I was trying to make money and I was hard to make money. So I was working a day job. Uh, I was working, doing, <clears throat> I was doing photo photo photography and video editing freelance. And I was working a day job and just scraping by to make ends meet. Uh, and this was a this was around when I was about to start making average community. Um, so when my son was born, my son was born in uh, 2009, just as I was finishing editing average community. So right around that time, um, I had a newborn baby. I had a three-year-old. I had a wife at home that was trying to manage all of that. <clears throat> I had a job. I was freelancing. So my days were really long. And then when everyone would go to sleep at night, 
I would go hide in my office and finish editing Average Community. Um, <laughs> and it started to hit me that like, why why do I do this? Why am I like, why can't I be filled with just my day job and my family and then my weekends and like, why can't I just watch football and enjoy cooking out? Like, why do I have this? I need to create something for myself. You know, um, I always think about like, like a plumber, uh, nothing against plumbers, but I picture a plumber goes to work and he plums for eight to 10 hours a day. He comes home, he takes a shower and he just plops in front of the couch and opens a beer and, and he just enjoys the rest of the night. And on the weekends, his friends come over and they watch football and they just enjoy their lives. Does a plumber necessarily have the same, maybe he does, but does, does someone like a blue collar worker like that, do they have that same desire to find these little corners of freedom and fill them with, I need to create something. You know, it's, it's one thing if I'm 15, 17 years old and, and I work three days a week at the mall or something like that. And the rest of the time I'm, you know, I'm drawing pictures or I'm playing in a band. That's different. I have a family, I have children, I have a, a, a career I'm trying to build. Why do I have to make this documentary at the same time? Like, am I a sick person? <laughs> Uh, so I, st I just, I couldn't get that question out of my, out of my mind. And I wanted to talk to other artists, not artists that were making a living, um, off of their art, you know, arguably Bruce Springsteen makes his living off of going to playing concerts, you know? So like, I don't have to ask Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, why do you write songs? Well, that's what I do for a living. It's how I put food on the table. That's different. You know, I don't put food on the table with making average community. So why do I have this desire to do that? So I tried to find artists of, of all natures, musicians, painters, uh, anyone I can find that wasn't making a living at their art and, and quite frankly, maybe is struggling in life to pay the bills, but somehow, some way they find time to carve out for their creative outlets. And like, what is that desire? And I didn't want to tell them what I was trying to do. I just wanted to sit them down and I wanted to ask them that question. Why do you do it? And just see what kind of answers I could get. And for our listeners who haven't seen the film, um, what did you find out? What's the common ground or the, the thread that runs through all the creative people who are giving up sleep to follow their passion? Well, I will say that uh, I look at it a lot differently now than I did then. <clears throat> um, but the common thread with all of them was an they couldn't really explain why, but the answer was always because I have to, okay. because I have to. I have felt that feeling and I've said those words mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, I was, I was hoping that, uh, there was a, a secret, uh, code there that would, would, uh, set us free from having to do it and, and just be able to do it if we wanted to, but nope, it's. It's that same thing whenever you talk to artists, I agree. So you're an independent filmmaker, and indie films come with their own unique set of challenges. And uh, budget comes to mind. You were talking about making a living, um, and everything does cost money. As an independent film producer and director, do those constraints influence the kind of script you'll consider? And um, if so, in what capacity. I'm thinking of the number of locations, the cast size, the sets, the costuming, um, the passage of time within the story, those kinds of things. Um, how does, how does budget constraints, um, how do budget constraints influence those decisions? Well, they have to, uh, every step of the way. Um, I've taught a few, um, filmmaking workshops, uh, and I'm, I'm structuring out another one now. And uh, one thing that I like to say uh, is that um, at our level, this independent, you know, um, almost micro budget, low budget, ind independent filmmaking, you need to be conscious of everything that you're putting in the script. Every time you write a header with a brand new location, you need to see dollar signs. Every time you make one of your characters speak a line, that's, that's different than somebody just showing up and being in the background. Now you have a now you have a character that's speaking. So everything just needs to be conscious, and you almost want to think about it before you even go, go into your script. What locations can I get? You know, oh, I know I know somebody that owns a coffee shop. 
I'm going to write something that has a coffee shop scene. I know somebody that, that has a diner, you know, I'm going to write something that has that, uh, a diner in it. Uh, I'm not going to write a scene that, that takes place uh, on a football field. Um, cause I probably can't go to get a football field. Golf, golf courses are actually uh, a little bit difficult to get, um, cause they're private property and, um, you could do it, but if you don't have that available to you, uh, and, and I found out kind of the hard way with ReadMe, um, I'm somewhat connected to the theater scene, you know, pretty connected to the theater scene in, in Orlando. And of course I'm casting a lot of actors that are film actors and theater actors, uh, as I'm writing the script, I'm like, I'm going to put, I'm going to put this in, uh, in, in a theater. I'm going to have the, the, some of the main characters work in a, in a little theater and have them be in that world. Cause that'll be an easy location to get. I didn't have a connection. I just assumed I could, that would be an easy location to get because of, uh, my, you know, I'm, I, I know people in, in the industry and I'm getting local actors that work in these theaters. That'll be cake. It ended up being the hardest location that I could I could have gotten, and I ended up paying the most for that location in the whole film. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, to, to answer your question, yes, you have to. It has to influence everything, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that's why independent filmmakers. A lot of times, you'll see a lot of independent films that take place in the woods. You know, people just running around, lost in the woods, horror films or whatever they are, because uh, the woods are free. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The woods are free. So uh, if you if you have a good location that you can write a film about uh, or around it, uh, I would suggest definitely do that. Because um, at this this level, one one mistake that I think people make as independent filmmakers, uh, if I could be so obnoxious to say that I see mm-hmm. mistakes as independent filmmakers, is that they they try to produce things outside their means. They try to make, you know, uh, a born ident uh, the born identity type of film with no money you know, this, this incredibly intricate car chase and chase scene, fight scenes, guns, and they don't have the means to do that. And it just, it kind of comes off really kind of, uh, it, it just comes off low budget. You know, you're, you're not, you're not going to fool anybody when you, when you can't pull it off at a high level, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't try and make, uh, well, I'm, I, I think you know what I'm trying to say. Like, uh, yeah. keep you, keep it within your means. One thing that you can control as an independent filmmaker is the script, the dialogue. Really think deeply about your characters and make them all individuals. Um, they're not just people that show up to give the one main character something to do. They're all individuals with their likes and dislikes and backstories. And that you can control. That you can write with a low budget or a high budget. Uh, so if you can't control anything else, keep that in mind, keep, you know, keep your cast and your dialogue and your characters in mind, uh, and try not to write too many, too many locations or, you know, too I w- many. I would think not too many characters as well, because if so, if you could combine characters, uh, for sure, to and, serve the plot and for the suicide of James Ryder, I actually wrote that, um, a little bit looser than I would you know, uh, with something smaller because I, I anticipated getting a little bit more money to make that. Um, and it's, it's highly personal movie and I wanted it to, I I didn't want to have any restraints when I was writing it. I just wanted to write the story the way I needed to tell the story. Um, and then later I ended up with a smaller budget than I anticipated. And I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) I guess I have to make a couple of compromises, but, um, luckily we, we got really, really lucky with timing and weather and everything just worked out uh perfectly making that film or uh you know one little thing i'm i'm getting a little ahead of myself uh here but one one little thing would have fell apart like uh the last day of shooting was supposed to rain um we can talk about that when you bring up the film but uh if if it rained on that one particular day um everything would have fell apart. Uh, I would have lost actors. People had other commitments. They couldn't have come back. I couldn't have written, written, written them out of the scene because it wouldn't have made sense anymore. Uh, so luckily everything worked out mm-hmm. perfectly. You know, you call it luck, but I honestly think there's a force that loves when creative people decide 
to go out and make something wonderful, whether it's a painting or a book or a movie. And I think that the creative forces that, you know, run through all of us, I think they conspire to make good things happen just as a reward for having that courage. I mean, there's so many people who talk about, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to act in a movie. I've always wanted to do this and that. And all it is is talk. And then there are people like you who say, you know, this this young man who was my friend was important to me. I want his life to be remembered. And I'm going to make a movie about that. And I think that's a force that causes the rain to hold off. No, I would uh I would 100% agree with that statement. So, we've brought up The Suicide of James Ryder. Go ahead and tell us about this film. We're very excited. I'm going to go uh, tomorrow morning and see it and unfortunately this podcast won't be out into the universe until after the um the film festival's over, but I'm sure we'll get to see it in in the uh, in the future in some uh, fashion. So tell us about cool. the suicide of James Ryder, please. Okay. So the suicide of James Ryder, uh, it's based on a true story. Um, it's based, uh, I, I based it on uh, a friend of mine. His name, his real name was James Ballard. Uh, he committed suicide uh, back in 2001. Um, and so James was, uh, James was the, the guy at the party that everyone hoped would show up, you know, he was the life of the party. He was also, uh, the guy you would want to go camping with because he was just the guy that you would want to go camping with. He was also the guy that if you had a question on who played drums on that weird album that, uh, you know, the guys that put together the Allman brothers, but they did a side album and, you know, some weird question about music, James, you would call James because he would have the answer to that question. Uh, James was a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And he was an interesting guy and he was a good friend of ours. Um, and he passed away when he was 28 and I was also 28. Um, and it was only a couple of years after I moved to Florida. Um, and it kind of put shockwaves again through this group of friends that I was in. Uh, so when I, when I first moved to Florida, um, I felt a little bit like an outsider, you know, this, uh, Italian looking guy from New Jersey. I have two brothers that lived here, but for whatever reason, they, they both have red hair, <laughs> you know, they take after my mom's Irish side of the family. So they have red hair and freckles. Um, they were here for a, a couple of years before I got here. They already kind of made this group of friends happen before I came here. There was like this kind of hippie bohemian kind of artsy vibe to them. And then I arrive, uh, and I'm like this Italian kid from New Jersey. Uh, and I kind of just didn't fit in. Um, and it took a little while before I, I, I felt like I fit in. Um, but then James was here and James, you, James, you could fit in with anybody with James. James, uh, could hang out with, you know, punk rockers or Italian kids from New Jersey. Have you or, known him before or uh, did I, you meet him in Florida? I met I met him six months before I moved here. When I came here, uh, in, uh, to Orlando, that is, uh, on a trip. Uh, to visit, I met James um, back in 1998. Uh, so I knew I knew him a little bit. And then when I moved here, I was here a couple years before he passed away. Um, so after James passed away, uh, it really messed with the group of friends. Um, and some people eventually moved out of town. You know, things kind of like went their own ways. It wasn't long before both of my brothers moved out of town and now I was alone um, with my uh, my wife, Chris, of course. But uh, I was the group of friends weren't quite together anymore. And uh, it was it was just a really weird time. And it was it kind of hit me back then because this is around when I was taking film classes at Valencia. Um, the idea of making this into some sort of a film like it was making that impression on me that. You know, James. uh this guy that had all these interesting qualities, uh, the guy that everybody would have a different kind of story about him, uh, now just lives in those stories. You know, he's not, uh, with us anymore. Right. So 
it's it seemed like an interesting idea for me to try to make a film about making him the central character making him in a sense the star of the movie his name is in the title but he's absent through the whole movie and he only kind of is represented by the stories that his his friends leave behind <clears throat> sorry i'm getting emotional thinking about this <laughs> um so that kind of sat with me for about 15 years uh, uh as an idea for a film um and then around the time when I was doing read me, uh, it, 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 I, when, when, I'm, when you're out there on the film festival circuit and you're showing a film, you know, people are going to ask, what are you working on next? Right. right. <laughs> That's going to be, uh, either a, a panel or just net networking. So what do you, what do you get? Like, it's, a, they talk about the film you did for like a, a minute and then they want to just know what's coming next. Cause that's old news. So I know I had to have something kind of, you know, uh, that I was working on. So back in 2016, when I was showing read me at festivals, I started writing the script and, and it was kind of just falling out cause it was in my head for so long. Um, it was just, you know, it was, it was actually, I don't want to say it was easy to write. I mean, you're doing a podcast about writing, so I don't want to, I don't want to sound obnoxious and say writing is easy, but this was actually one of the, mo the more easier things to write because I kind of had the structure for so long. And when I did with the structure, the reason I gave you so much backstory about, uh, when I moved here, um, I needed someone in the story that could sit in for the audience while all these friends are telling the stories about their friend, James, that had passed away. I needed somebody to be the vessel that was listening to all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I decided to make the, the lead character, Richie based on me, uh, and my journey moving to Florida and, you know, getting in with a group of friends that I didn't feel like I quite fit in. And at the same time, I changed the timeline. So Richie in the, in the film based on me, but he never knew James. He moves here right after James uh, had committed suicide. So he moves in with this new group of friends in the film um, just after the suicide. And it, it, he's just in this new group of friends that he's trying to fit in with. And all they talk about is this, this guy, James, and he, and he wants to be compassionate. I, I didn't really know him, but yeah, tell me about him. Uh, but at the same time, he's trying to figure his own stuff out, you know, um, and then slowly he starts to get influenced by this guy weird guy james that he's never met and like it kind of influences his life in a different direction wow i love that and that's that's another um example of what a writer can do um you know you had this need for the um for the narrative arc of the story you had this need for a character and so you came up with one and you came up with a backstory and that's the kind of thing that you have to do to make it work and uh, good on you for for solving that problem. Now, well, some of you. the um, some of the other uh, problems um, with making an independent film, uh, if you're a screenwriter wanting to to uh, to write a film, um, what are some of the uh, deal breakers or trip wires uh, that a screenwriter should avoid? We've talked about something that worked, but what are some of the things that don't work? In, in, in our world, low budget independent right, filmmaking. Right. <clears throat> well, uh, like, like I said, I, I probably keeping within your means, you know, mm -hmm. um, try not to write too many things that, you know, remember when you're, the biggest thing is just remember when you're writing that you're going to have to do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're a writer on, you're writing a spec script that you're trying to, you know, option or sell one thing but if you're writing something that you know you're going to make um just have it on, on your on your mind what is this going to look like when i'm on set trying to pull this thing off you know what comes to mind for me is special effects um you know there, there's this wonderful scene in your head but you have to think about can the director and the actors and the set design people actually make it work um, that that's one that comes to mind for me as, as and uh, stunts is another uh -huh. one. Stunts, um, yeah. Uh, stunts and, and again, car, car, mm -hmm. uh, car chases or, or, or whatnot. Um, things like that, that like, you know, it's, it's hard enough to put a film together with these budgets as it is, even if the film is just me and you sitting here <laughs> yeah. for two hours, uh, talking it's, it would be hard enough to, to write that, light it, shoot it, find time, you know, have PAs show up uh, and be able to help out and have a good quality sound engineer and a good DP. That's hard enough. 
you know, uh, to, to make the challenge of like having stunts or special effects, explosions, explosions, all, (laughs) all of that stuff. I'm not saying don't do that. Uh, I'm just saying that when you're doing that on a low budget, you're, you're going to telegraph to the audience. You're going to take them out of the story because it's not going to be a Steven Spielberg effect that we're watching. It's going to be something, uh, much less expensive. Yeah. I like something you just said. Um, and I think it might be helpful to the writers that are listening who might want to write screenplays is, you know, respect the story, uh, do what you need to do to tell the story and don't pull the, the viewer out of the story by putting something in that's hard to believe. Um, so let's, and, and, and not to cut you off, but uh, that actually is, goes along with just about all of directing and filmmaking. You know, a lot of people, um, there, there are some rules and some structure to filmmaking, you know, uh, and, and I'm a rule breaker. <laughs> I'm an ex-punk rocker, you know. I'm, I know all about breaking the rules. However, when you're directing, when you're setting up shots, when you're looking at over the shoulders and 180 rules and all of these different things, you can't just ignore them. Because exactly what you just said, you're just going to ask to have the audience be taken out of it. Sometimes they won't even know why. Uh, Sometimes you won't even know why when you're watching what you shot. It's not quite working. Well, and I'm not saying that you can't break some of these filmmaking rules. Same thing with structure of of, of a screenplay. You can break some rules when it comes to, but you need to be conscious of why are you doing it. And, And that, look, point it out. I know I'm breaking this rule right here. But here's why and here's what it's going to lead to. Quentin Tarantino does it all the time, but he knows that he's doing it. You know, he 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 know he understands film language. He's not going in without ever, you know, studying this stuff. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And another thing that I would also um, say about um, <clears throat> screenwriting uh, is uh, my biggest uh, bit of advice would be to, to write what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that sounds um, simple. Uh, and if you, again, if you're working in Hollywood and you're being hired to do a rewrite or, uh, write something, uh, and, and you've been doing this as a career for 20 years, it's, I'm not talking to you, but who I am talking to is independent filmmakers who are just trying to get their stuff off the ground. Write what, write what, you know, I, like, I understand you might like Martin Scorsese films, but if you grew up in, you know, Fort Myers, Florida, um, you don't know that world. You didn't grow up in lower Manhattan with, with a bunch of wise guys. So why are you writing a gangster movie? You know, you may like those films, but it's going to feel like a copycat movie when people watch it. That's what it's going to feel like. Right. You know? Um, so I would say, I would say, right, right. What you know, you know, and you know, that's such good advice, especially when writing dialogue. Um, one of the things that I'm doing right now is writing the screenplay um, adaptation of my novel, Sewing Holes, which is set in Jacksonville uh, during my childhood. And, um, during the time I was writing the novel and then even now, uh, working on the adaptation, I can still hear the conversations and the accents and the, um, the very unique and interesting, uh, version of English that is spoken on the North side of Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and it's if you're writing about experiences and people that you know very, very well, you're going to get that authentic, genuine dialogue. And it's it's really helpful. And, and audiences will subconsciously pick up on it if you're faking it. Right. If I'm writing your story. Right. If I took, you know, if I read your book and said, oh, I'm going to write this and I'm going to put my own spin on it. They would pick that up if right. you tried to write a movie about uh, a kid from New Jersey that got thrown out of high school when he was fifteen. Right? Uh, it there 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 would be something about it that someone would feel is inauthentic and yeah. and wouldn't feel connected to it. Yeah. So I'm although saying, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. now, it's not a hundred percent. It's not across yeah. the board. It you know some some people are more creative than me, so maybe they could pull it off. <laughs> um, well, I think I think that that advice, right? What you know has been given to us in many different contexts for so long that it is a cliche, but there's a reason that cliches are cliches. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's because they have truth in them. 
And so um, I, I appreciate you bringing that uh, to us today because it's, it's very, very apropos here. So let's turn it around uh, just for a moment. What are you looking for in a screenplay? As an independent filmmaker, uh, if someone were going to uh, try to pitch a story to you, um, what are you looking for? I would say just what we were just talking about, a personal um, experience uh, of some some kind. You know, uh, I, I generally don't do too much that I didn't write. Um, however, I do, uh, I co-directed a film, a short film, uh, last year. What year is it? 2019. (laughs) It's hard to to remember what's going on. Uh, it's 2019. Okay. So last year I co-directed a film with, um, uh, Aaron Lane, who, uh, she wrote the film, she started in the film, uh, and she, uh, and she co-directed the film with me. Um, so, when I read the script that she was working on and she asked me to work on it, uh, I could tell because I, because I, she's a good friend of mine and I could tell this was a truly personal story. This was, this was her telling something from, from her soul that, that she needed to get out. You know, she wasn't trying to, you know, emulate something that she thought was cool. She wasn't trying to write something, you know, Hey, I like that TV show girls. I'm going to make my version of girls this was an Aaron Lane story that she was trying to tell. Uh, and, and that, that spoke to me. What was interesting and exciting to me about a situation like that, um, something that I didn't write, but I, I'm now going to direct, um, is that I almost feel more responsible to the storyteller. Um, cause when it's mine, you know, it's all on me and, and, and I'm, it's, maybe I don't feel more responsible. Maybe I feel, I, I, it's hard, it's hard to explain, but I almost feel a responsibility to to get this right because I'm I'm now uh, I'm I'm holding your story. I'm now responsible for telling your story and that's 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 a big deal. Whereas if you came to me and you handed me a story that you uh Darlene wrote and it was it was about uh a little Japanese boy that that grew up in the South of Bronx. You know, I'd be like, oh, this, this is a pretty good story. I don't, I don't know who's, I'm not connected to it in any way. I'm, I don't feel like you are necessarily connected. It, it wouldn't really grab me. Uh, but when somebody brings me something and, and, you know, and it's personal, that's what, that's what grabs me. Because You're sort of saying, here's my life, be gentle. That's it. Yeah. 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 I mean, because <laughs> yeah. these, these projects are our babies, right? And mm-hmm. when you hand off your baby to somebody. Yeah. You know, you got to be delicate with somebody's baby. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, uh, I, I get a lot of entertainment out of big budget films or little budget films, sometimes horror films. Me and my son watched uh, the original Halloween last last cool. night. So that was kind of fun. Uh, but what really grabs me with cinema and, and storytelling is people sharing a bit of themselves uh, in these, in these mediums, you know, um, so that that's what I would look for is someone that's actually sharing yourself, you know, tell, telling me something that, you know, I, is really coming deep from, from your soul. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the movie Read Me, and I wanted to circle back to that because um, that was actually the first film I saw of yours that you had made. I saw it at a film festival in Orlando and I was just immediately taken with it. Um, I've bought it. I've, you know, got it here at home. I watch it every once in a while. Uh, it, it's a fine, fine film. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Uh, did you write the story yourself and, um, was it sort of based on something in your life or was it uh, a fictional idea that you wanted to, to uh, express? Go ahead and, and tell us about Read Me. Okay, so Read Me is a film, 2015 is uh, when it, when it first showed, in 2015, 2016-ish uh, film festivals. Uh, Read Me is about a guy that has dyslexia, an adult that has dyslexia. And, um, you know, with dyslexia, it's not like you can't read. However, I thought it, um, growing up with a learning disability and with dyslexia, uh, I got to a point uh, where we talked earlier about me overcoming it. I got to a point where I was, you know, in, in those middle teen years where I was trying to get a little bit away from the, the, the punk rock stuff and, 
you know, maybe, maybe think about taking some college classes and get a high school diploma and stuff like that. Uh, so I had to buckle down and study and try to overcome this thing. Uh, but it's, it did occur to me. What if I, like, I didn't have, you know, a support system. What if my mom didn't care? What if my dad just didn't care? You know, what if I didn't have anybody that really pushed me towards anything and nobody cared? What would have happened if I didn't overcome it? And I, I just, you know, stumbled through life and just, it was hard to learn how to read when I was younger. So like, I'm just not going to do this. I'm just not going to learn how to read. And now, you know, I take this character that I wrote into the script, Clark, he's now approaching 40 years old and somehow flew under the radar and just never learned how to read. Uh, he's a smart guy. He's very, uh, he's, uh, he, you know, uh, he's very observant. Um, and I thought that like, what kind of skills would you develop if you couldn't read the written word? Um, so I kind of thought like, okay, maybe you can't read. Now I'm letting you into my thought process on how I make the movie, right? Love it. That's what we want. <laughs> so I start, I'm thinking like, okay, now if he can't read, he's an adult, he can't read. What, what kind of skills might develop out of that? Cause you know, they say like if a blind person loses their sight, uh, or a person loses their sight, um, you know, their, their hearing is in, in is heightened or, you know, uh, if somebody loses their, you know what I mean? So yes. something else mm -hmm. is in, is heightened. So I, it started making me wonder what would, what would happen with someone that, that couldn't read? Um, he would just have to navigate the world in a different way. He would have to be much more observant to things. Um, so I, I, I came up with the idea that the catch line would be, he can't read words, but he can read people. Uh, and he can work his way out of situations. He could, he could almost know what somebody's thinking before they think it. Um, he could, he doesn't want anyone to necessarily know he can't read words. So if uh, something comes up where he has to fill out a job application, he finds some like clause to help somebody. Hey, I hurt my hand. Why don't you fill that out for me? Uh, you got a pen? You could fill it out because yeah, I messed my hand up yeah. kind of thing. So like he, he, he works his life to try and keep himself safe and make sure nobody finds out his secret. And he navigates the world without just being able to read a street sign. Right. Um, so that, that was, that, that was the, the jumping off point. Um, and then I, cause I'm do, I do this just what I do. I write love, love stories into things. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, boy meets girl kind of thing happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, that's where the story goes. Yeah. It was very, very touching. I highly recommend the film. Um, so we've talked about, um, you know, making, making movies and trying to keep things, uh, low budget. Um, if you, if you must, um, but talk to me about funding because, um, I want to know, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners want to know how much does a typical indie film cost to make and how do filmmakers go about raising the money to make the uh, films they want to make? I guess it this is not a very good answer, but it all depends mm -hmm. is the answer. <laughs> um, first of all, if you're talking about a short film, you're talking about less money. Um, There's a lot of filmmakers that don't pay anybody, mm -hmm. um, which makes a big difference if you're not paying mm -hmm. anybody. Uh, I try and pay basically everybody that works on the film. I try and give them something, mm -hmm. uh, some more, more so than, than others. Uh, I, I strongly believe that, you know, I, I, I'm an actor and I would love to pay actors a handsome salary as much as I could afford or even more because, you know, your actors, they are your film. Um, but unfortunately, you can't afford to pay the actors what they deserve. Uh, you do have to shell out a little bit extra money for um, like your 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 sound and your picture, uh, your, your director of photography and your sound engineer. Um low budget independent filmmakers often try and cut corners with sound. It's a terrible thing to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I would put more money uh, or, or thought into your sound than sometimes your, your picture. Um, believe it or not, it's way more forgiving to look at a grainy picture, uh, something that's maybe not framed perfectly than it is to sit there and listen to static or you can't hear the dialogue or somebody didn't filter out cars driving by or whatever you know, um, or they use really cheap equipment. So you'd want to put some money into those things. Um, budgets I've worked with are, are anywhere for a feature film, like seven to $10,000 up to like $30,000. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so we're talking about when you say a feature film, we're talking 90 minutes <clears throat> to uh, two hours. Uh, uh, sort of yeah. yeah. Uh, Read Me is just under 90 minutes. Okay. Um, the Suicide of James Ryder is um, uh, an hour and 47 minutes. And so let's say I need, you know, I've decided I need $25,000 to make a 90-minute film. Um, how does one go about finding that money? You've, you've done it, so. Uh. <laughs> well, uh, well, first of all, um, let me backtrack a little bit. You can't just decide. Uh, you need $25,000 to make a movie. Um, what I would suggest to people is that you break down your script and you budget everything out and get a line item for everything in the film and even things that aren't in the film that just might happen to happen, you know, like, so I don't know, you run out of gas, whatever. Uh, and so, then double the, and then <laughs> the double, amount. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I would, I would come up with a, with a firm budget and know what you exactly what you need going in and not just kind of think, I think I need about that much. Uh, once, once that work is done, now you gotta go find money. Right. Right. Uh, nowadays crowdfunding is, is kind of a, a, a solid Avenue. That's how I got, um, wow. I'm a couple in now. Um, I worked with, uh, Banks Helfrick on seven lives of chance. We crowdfunded for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I crowdfunded for read me. I crowdfunded for the suicide of James Ryder. Mm-hmm. And most recently, um, ran a small crowdfunding campaign for a, a television a episodic pilot that I'm about to shoot uh, called high existence. Um, so crowdfunding is, is maybe the best way unless you happen to have, you know, people in your family that you can borrow money off of, or you could just save your money for a year. Um, there's no real easy answer to how do you get the money? It's however you can get the money. Um, crowdfunding uh, is newer. I mean, newer, what, uh, again, what year is it? 2019. Um, <laughs> it's crowdfunding's probably been around at least eight or nine years, I guess. Right. Um, but it's newer in a sense that what, like, you know, back in the nineties when Kevin Smith was making clerks, he wasn't crowdfunding. Uh, so crowdfunding is actually, it's pretty, it's a pretty solid Avenue for independent filmmakers. If they, if they know how to work their networks, um, social media, that kind of thing. And uh, one big thing is I would suggest with crowdfunding is don't ask for too much. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think you need $25,000, ask for 18, um, hoping you'll get at least 18 and maybe push it up to 20 and then maybe start throwing in some money of your own. Um, because if you, if you ask for too much, it, it, it just, it burns you. People Usually just burns. walk away. I've seen it. I've seen it yeah. too many times. You know, um, I went in to read me thinking I needed 25 grand to make it. Uh, and I didn't get 25 grand. So I had to rethink the campaign and ask for less. And I ended up getting $2,000 over what I originally asked for because I asked for a whole lot less. We got to the goal and then you can keep pushing it. Uh, then, then it kind of feels like it's actually a project that's happening. It's not a project that I'm trying to get to happen because look, we got the funding that I needed. So now we can make it a little bit better. Um, so crowdfunding, friends and family, dentists, people always say, go, go to your, go to your local dentist. Okay. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. And that's great. Um, so when you're doing crowdfunding, what are you selling? Are you selling, um, the story? Are you selling, uh, yourself as the filmmaker? Uh, are you selling, um, an opportunity for them to be uh, a, a part of, you know, something new and exciting. What exactly do you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this crowdfunding campaign and mm-hmm. this is how I'm going to yeah. approach and, and get people to loosen up their wallets. Because frankly, every day when you go on Facebook, there are four or five people it's with getting, their hand out asking for money. It's getting hard. Yeah, it's and, getting you know, we've, we've got to choose between saving the children and saving the, um, animals and saving the water and the air. And, you know, and I I don't mean to sound blithe because everything is important and I write way too many small checks. I'm making fun of myself at this point, but, um, you know, to reach out my hand and say, I'd like to make a film. uh, How do you approach people? I would say number one, uh, all of those things. 
you are selling the story. You are selling yourself. Um, you are selling the idea of being, you know, asking people to be a part of this thing with you. Um, so it's all, all, all of your communication with the people that you're trying to, you know, sell to, or, you know, ask to, ask to join. It's, it's, that's, that's the communication. You're joining a movement. You know what I mean? Um, but you're, you're selling your passion, you're selling your passion and you're selling your dream and you're asking people to help, help you live out your dream, you know, help you live out. And, and that's why it's, you know, uh, telling personal stories ends up helping me a little bit because people see that this really means something to me. I mean, I, again, there's nothing wrong with a, a good zombie movie. There's nothing wrong with a, a vampire movie. Those are all fine and good, but I'm, I'm not quite going to get my, my, my people behind me is as much Mm -hmm. if I'm just doing something because I think it will be fun and cool to tell this story. Um, if I, if I can convince them and, and be as as honest as possible that this is something going back to the the movie create, this is something that needs to be done. This is something that I, I I can't control this. I have to get this out and I need your help to make that happen. Um, that, that message ends up resonating with people. Um, so also picking the right platform helps, you know, um, which one do you suggest? Well, the, uh, seed and spark is a newer one and it's, it's geared specifically towards television and, and film projects. Mm -hmm. Um, Indiegogo is, is is okay. Um, Kickstarter still has, uh, is a pretty solid platform. Uh, I would not suggest GoFundMe. That is, uh, what, what I'm kind of aiming at is that go, GoFundMe really geared towards people that lost their house or, or, okay. or have a disease or, or like they're trying right. to take care of their mother. You know, they're not right. looking to give you rewards or be a part of some project or they're not selling you on a passion. Okay. They're on, they're, they have hardship and, and we really need your help. Right. Uh, that's what a GoFundMe is. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't want to go out there and say, I want to make my film and go compete with someone that's trying to get, cancer treatment for their child or something like that. It, right. was just, it just doesn't feel right. right. I understand. That's very helpful. Now we just have a couple of more minutes, um, but, and this is going to sound, uh, I'm, I'm sort of chuckling to myself because it's going to sound like when you're on all those panels at film festivals, but what are you working on next? I think you mentioned a television pilot. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Um, so uh, again, I mentioned um, Aaron Lane. Uh, I partner with, uh, on, on a lot of projects, uh, wrote a episodic pilot and it stars, um, uh, Orlando actor, actor, actress. I don't know what politically correct terminology to use, uh, Sarah Humbert. And, um, she would be the lead. She would, the the movie, uh, I'm sorry, the, the pilot, uh, revolves around her, uh, and her life. Um, it's, it's sort of like a, uh, it, it's not a true to life story, but it reflects the funnier parts of her life. Um, it's, it's about a, it's about a yoga instructor and a therapist. She's a yoga instructor and a therapist and, uh, she's going through a divorce. Um, uh, and so like, she's trying to counsel people as a therapist. She's trying to center people as a yoga instructor. And in the meantime, her life is falling apart. Wow. Uh, and you know, she's a mess. Um, so that's, that's the, the, that that's the the jumping off point for the, the episodic uh, pilot. So uh, Aaron wrote it. Um, uh, her and I are co-directing it together and producing it together. And uh, the lead actor is uh, Sarah Humbert. Sounds exciting. I would watch that. It's going to be fun. It's yeah. good. It's, it's actually, again, going back to, um, you know, we're working with Aaron uh, going back to that is it's, it's kind of a joy to work on something that I, I wouldn't write an episodic, pilot about a, a yoga instructor uh and the other film that i worked on with uh aaron uh which was about uh, a woman um giving up her dreams for her husband mm-hmm. and that situation blowing up in her face i wouldn't write that story um but i know that these are personal stories to the, to these people my partners that i'm working mm-hmm. with here and it's a joy for me to be able to partner with them and tell someone else's story or at least help tell someone else's story, you know, cause it gets, Lord, it gets exhausting telling my own <laughs> stories all the time. Uh, yeah. so I'm actually, I'm really excited about, uh, doing something a little bit funny, a little bit shorter form, uh, and just something that I'm not so emotionally invested in and just kind of just have fun shooting. 
Sure. Well, this has been a fun experience for me. Thank you so much for visiting with us. Good luck at the Southeast Regional Film Festival tomorrow and uh, with your film, uh, The Suicide of James Ryder. And I hope that next time you're in Jacksonville, you'll come back to River of Grass. We've enjoyed having you. Thank you. It's been, it's been fun. Scribbler's Corner is produced by Brad Kuhn and Associates, a multimedia production company making authors' dreams come true for almost a decade. BKNA offers a full print shop with design services for everything from books to bookmarks and banners, digital audio recording, video book trailers, and animation, priced for self-published authors and indie publishers. The Corner is also brought to you by the Jacks by Jacks Literary Arts Festival, Jacksonville Writers Writing Jacksonville, now in its sixth year. Writer applications open July 1st for this year's event, which will be held on Saturday, November 16th. And finally, a podcast wouldn't be a podcast without listeners like you. If you like what you're hearing and want me to keep doing it, please do me the favor of subscribing and spreading the word by telling at least one friend about us.